This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 28, Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. Chapter 12 begins with a woman giving birth to a son. Congratulations, lady. Now you're Tmeah for seven days. But don't worry, you can rejoin polite society in time for the Brit. I hope you got a good caterer. But then you're Tmeah again for 33 days more, as if you were having your period. So remember, you can't touch anything Kadosh until your purification. But if you have a girl... You're now Tmeah for two weeks, and then you're Tmeah for 66 days more. Once purified, you can bring a yearling lamb, a young pigeon, or turtle dove as a chatat offering to the Kohen at the entrance of the Tent of Appointment. The Kohen will effect the purgation for you, little lady, and if you can't afford a sheep, two turtle doves and two pigeons will do. Chapter 13 introduces tzara'at, which is commonly translated as leprosy. Except that tzara'at is not Hansen's disease, as the subsequent verses and circumstances will make clear. So congratulations, sir or madam. Do you have a swelling or scab or shiny spot? Are there white hairs in the afflicted area? Take yourself down to Aharon because you've got Sarat. The treatment, as prescribed by the Kohen, is a simple one. Seven days of Tameh isolation, which may be followed depending on the spread or color of the Tzarat, with seven more days of alone time outside the camp, or a clean bill of Tahara. The same treatment applies for cloths of various kinds, say wool or linen, or animal skins equally afflicted, except resistant strains are to be treated with fire, as in, the infected items are to be burned and destroyed. Chapter 14 describes the purification of the mitzorah, or the one with tzara'at, involving a final examination by the kohen outside the camp, two birds, cedar wood, worm scarlet, and hyssop. The Kohen kills one of the birds in an earthenware vessel, quote, held above living water, then dips the second bird along with cedar wood, worm scarlet, and hyssop into the first bird's blood. The Kohen then sprinkles the mitzorah seven times with this mixture and then frees the bird, having declared the individual tahor. The newly tahor individual then scrubs all of his garments, removes all hair from his body, and then after seven days he can re-enter the camp. On the eighth day, the newly tahor individual brings two lambs, a yearling lamb, three-tenth measures of flour mixed with oil, and one log of oil to the, to the Kohen. The Kohen processed these offerings as an asham and olah, that is, an elevation offering and chatat, and with each offering, a portion is held back to be smeared on the newly tahor donor, be it blood or oil, and a portion is set aside for the Kohen. Uh, for those in the lower tax brackets, the amounts of offering up are reduced accordingly. Chapter 14 concludes uh, with God telling Moshe and Aharon what to do when a house is afflicted with tzarat. The course of treatment is similar with isolation and quarantine, use of live birds, cedar wood, worm scarlet, and hyssop, as well as the demolition of non-responsive domiciles. Chapter 15 continues the focus on Tum'ah and Tahara. Surprise, surprise! Specifically, uh, in this case, it's a man who becomes, as Fox renders it, quote, one with a flow from his flesh. And anything this man comes in contact with, be it 
a bed or a chair is also tamay, and anyone who comes in contact with that bed or chair must, quote, scrub his garments and wash in water and will remain tamay until sunset. The same applies if contact happens between a one with a flow and one without a flow, or one with a flow spits on someone without a flow, or someone without a flow sits on a saddle sat upon by one with a flow. The someone without a flow must, quote, scrub his garments and wash in water and will remain tamay until sunset. And I keep thinking of that lovely euphemism ant flow, which comes into play later in the chapter. So in order to keep things and the flows separate, I'll refer to one with flow from here on out as uncle flow. Except uncle flow has a different kind of flow than ant flow. Mm. Earthen vessels that come into contact with uncle flow must be smashed. Wooden vessels, on the other hand, can be purified. As for uncle flow, when he flows no longer... He must wait seven days, then scrub his garments, wash in water, etc., etc. Then on day eight, he must take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come to the tent of appointment and give them to the Kohen who offers them up as a chatat and ola. Now, Uncle Flo's flow is not semen because verse 16 speaks of another man whose emission is more seedy and how that man has to wash, etc., etc. But this man is only tame until sunset, as is the woman who lies with him. But this woman isn't Aunt Flo either. Aunt Flo, yes, that Aunt Flo is Tamea for seven days and must be isolated. Anyone who touches her is Tamea until sunset. Anything she comes into contact with, a chair, a bed, a spinner, exercise bike, is also Tamea. And anyone who touches that chair or that bed or takes the next Spinga class is Tamea as well and must scrub, etc., 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 until sunset. And if a man lays with Aunt Flo, then he is Tamea for seven days. And if Anflo's flow continues for longer than normal, the same rules about isolation and unfortunate contact, washing and all that still apply, as does the seven-day post-flow waiting period and the eighth-day offering to the Kohen. So, there's a lot more flows to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it! and Levites, be they three or four or six percent of the population, work exclusively in an environment of tahara. It is thus no surprise that for them, tum'ah is a big deal. The same could be true, or probably is true, for someone who works with sick people. Exposure to MRSA or C. difficile is cause for concern. The average person touches their face three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, and each other. But considering the lineup of folks in need of some tahara in this week's portion, one wonders, what's with Aunt and Uncle Flo? I mean, were there that many flowing people in the desert and eventually in Canaan that the Kohanim needed to be aware of the ins and outs, or more like the outs of this kind? Our portion doesn't begin with any kind of flow, but with sarat, which reads like a medical condition in Leviticus 13. It's diagnosed, and its pathology is scrutinized. Did it happen spontaneously, or as a result of a furuncle or a burn? Did it develop in the hair, or on the scalp, or in the beard? Symptoms are also identified. Perhaps it's a swelling, or a subcutaneous nodule, or it's a cuticular crust, or perhaps it's a whitish-red spot. And most importantly, did the disease penetrate the skin? But if you look at other instances of tzarat in the Tanakh, the condition spreads less because of contagion and more because of bad behavior. 
Later on, spoiler alert, in Numbers 12, Miriam is stricken because she badmouths Moshe about his Kushite wife. Gehazi disobeys his master Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 and is punished with the leprosy his master relieved of Naaman. King Uziah, who usurps the priestly right of burning incense, also gets leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 15. Of note here is the duration of the infections. Miriam's illness passes quickly. Naaman apparently mingled freely and publicly, but Uziah was isolated permanently in the palace. This particular skin condition commanded the attention of the Tanaim as well in the Mishnah, so much so that the third tractate of the order Taharot is entitled Negaim. It deals exclusively with Tzarat. It also commanded the attention of the authors of the New Testament, where Jesus cured lepers in Luke, Matthew, and Mark. And in the former source, Jesus tells the cured leper in Luke chapter 5, verse 14, quote, Go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded. But what about all the subsequent flowing and flowers? We have to distinguish between three types of flow. The two male flowers, and I guess I called them uncle flow before, so I have to sort of distinguish them even more. So let's call them uncle Reuven flow and uncle Shimon flow. They have two different flows. The first, Uncle Reuven flow, has what Rashi describes as, quote, similar to the water of dough made from barley, and it is dissolved, and similar to the white of an egg which has not become rotten. A whole tractate in the Mishnah, Order to Harod, is dedicated to this disease. Uncle Shimon flow discharges semen. Thus, Uncle Shimon flow is what's known as a Baal Keri. These discharges are not the same. In the Torah and Science section of the Barilan University website, Professor Yeshayahu Nitzan of the Faculty of Life Sciences proclaims quite definitively that Uncle Reuven Flo has gonorrhea. And I'll link to it on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. However, if we look at the standard trajectory of any kind of transmitted disease, sexual or otherwise, there really isn't one, because mutations abound. Take another uh, sexually transmitted disease. Take syphilis, for example. It was first reported in Europe as an outbreak amongst French troops at the siege of Naples in 1494 and 1495. Back then, the sufferer's body became covered in pustules. The flesh just fell away, and, and within a few months, the sufferer would die. Today, the typical syphilitic presents a wide variety of symptoms, but none as extreme as those reported over five centuries ago. And yet, Professor Nitsan is pretty confident, so let's assume he's right. This connection between Uncle Reuven flow and gonorrhea, as well as ant flow, raises an interesting question, but I'll, I'll get to that question shortly. But first, a quick Google history of gonorrhea. The earliest record of what is suspected to be gonorrhea appears in a legal document, the Acts of Parliament in England, where in 1611 a law was passed to combat the spread of, quote, the perilous infirmity of burning. About 150 years later, King Louis IX of France, also known as Saint Louis, decreed that those similarly stricken should be banished. Fast forward to the Crusader Siege of Akko, where similar symptoms were noted amongst the men. Although what is not clear is which Siege of Akko, the Siege of 1104 following the First Crusade, or the Siege of 1189 to 1191 during the Third Crusade, or the Siege of 1291, where the city fell as the final Crusader stronghold in the Holy Land. 
Once medieval doctors employed by the localities could not refuse patients, they suddenly found an increase in the disease, especially among those working in the sex trade, that is, prostitutes, infected with the burning. And coincidentally, they were also now compelled to treat lepers and other epidemic victims. And the rest is sexually transmitted history. Which brings me to that question I alluded to before. How did these folks contract gonorrhea? as gonorrhea as a primarily sexually transmitted disease. Unless they were having sex, and a lot of it. But with whom? Uh-oh. Do you mean to tell me that the men of Israel were having sex with women with whom they were not married? After all, in a monogamous hermetic system, there's no possible way for a man to contract gonorrhea. Well, that's not exactly true. There is a remotely possible way for a man to contract gonorrhea that does not involve sex, but, but then how would he transmit it in the same similarly remotely possible manner? This point is kind of glossed over by Leviticus, which for me casts the desert wandering in a whole new light. Now, you know, folks might say I'm making too much of this, but to dedicate serious column inches to this particular disease when there are other theoretically impurifying communicable diseases that get no mention at all in the Torah, well, like what disease, you may say? Like dyshydrotic eczema, or rosacea, or psoriasis, or the summer camp favorite in Patigo. Why don't they get any mention, but gonorrhea does? And I should remind you all that Uncle Shmuel's flow, his discharge, that is the second uncle flow, is sexual in nature too. His is carry or semen. So commentators have alluded to this question in a roundabout fashion, connecting the state of being as zav or baal carry to sinfulness, as the purification process requires bringing a sin offering after seven clean days, which implies that the behavior which led you to becoming a zav or baal carry was very, very naughty. Now, as for Ant Flow, she's not the same Ant Flow referred to in Japan as Little Miss Strawberry. And thanks to Flow, the Cultural Study of Menstruation, by Elisa Stein and Susan Kim, there are other lovely euphemisms for menstruation, such as in the Netherlands, the tomato soup is overcooked, or Brazil, I'm with Chico, or China, Little Sister has come, or in many parts of Latin America, Jenny has a red dress on. In Australia, I've got the flags out. Denmark, there are communists in the funhouse. Ireland, I'm wearing a jam rag. England, I'm flying the Japanese flag. France, the English have arrived. Germany, the cranberry woman is coming. Puerto Rico, did the rooster already sing? And my favorite, South Africa, grannies stuck in traffic. For more fun facts about menstruation, I'll put a link to the book on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. These euphemisms, Stein and Kim argue, have an agenda. While making light of menstruation, these clever bon mots also obscure and purge all references to menstruation from the culture. And in a sense, there is an obscuring and purging here too. Aunt Sally Flo is a Zava. She's afflicted well beyond the period of her period, and as such must undergo isolation from the camp and purification. But how did she contract gonorrhea? 
probably the same way as Uncle Ruvainflow, through sex. And so, in the discussion of Zavatu, we focus on outcomes and not on causes. Because I guess, for the Kohen, the target reader of Leviticus, who is assigned the task of moving this individual from a state of Tum'ah to a state of Tahara, how the person became Tameh is less important than how to move them into a place of Tahara. And I suppose that some questions are just better left unasked, don't you think? As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash TanakhCast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextju.com, or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 29 on Leviticus chapter 16 through 19 with a very special guest, Jay Michelson. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.